some of the regression analysis that I've conducted, pick hip extensor torque, single leg reactive strength index, and peak power during a um, squat jump, for example, those three measures combined seem to consistently relate to a reasonable amount in the variation of sprint performance. So never loads, but there's it's reasonably consistent. So for me, it suggests that, you know, I want to ensure that I'm, I'm, I guess I'm reaching what we might consider to be minimum thresholds. And providing I'm at minimum thresholds, whatever they may be, I'm not too fussed about really chasing after them beyond that point. That was James Wild, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System and K-Box, or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to another show. Thanks for being here. Speed training is always fun to talk about. I would say probably at least in in 10 shows that we do, I, I haven't officially tallied this up but i would say at least two probably have at least something if not a lot to do with speed training getting athletes faster and when it comes to speed training uh, there's so many facets we can chat about there's biomechanics there's specific strength qualities there's various training methods and workout and work setups uh, or training periodization setups but also it's important to look at things from not only those uh, ideologies but also to look at data points and minimum thresholds of strength and things that we're seeing from a numbers perspective. With that being said, our guest today is James Wild. James is a coach, an applied researcher, and a performance consultant. He has 20 years of experience training athletes. He leads the speed program for the Harlequins rugby men's team and is the head of performance for England women's lacrosse. James also lectures at the University of Surrey in strength and conditioning and is in the final stages of completing his PhD. Also, James is the author of Strength Training for Speed. James is not only someone who has a tremendous experience in the academic side of things, but also has been in the trenches coaching, and you'll hear it throughout the show how not only does he have data points on on various elements of athletics and sprinting, but 
he also coaches in a way that gets changes and improvements in speed to stick. On the show today, James and I will talk about his process of building an acceleration profile for an athlete, things like rate versus stride length dominance in acceleration and sprinting, foot versus hip uh, dominant strategies and hip extension, resisted sprinting ideas, uh, minimal explosive strength standards, and more. This is a show that does well on so many ends of the spectrum, and it's just another fantastic listen in our uh, collection on speed training. So enjoy this show with James Wild. Let's get on to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you're you're doing a PhD or finishing PhD work right now. What is um, what's your main objective there with that? Yeah, so so I'm in the in the fine. Thank God, I'm in the final stages of, of it now. So within the next three months, my thesis should should be written up. Written up. So so it's on the 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 biomechanics and motor control of sprint acceleration particularly like the the initial steps but but looking at um team sport athletes at the professional level so it's something that has been going on now for nearly nine years um so a a long time but as i explain to people when i tell them that you know eyebrows get get lifted quite rightly so um because again i I like procrastinating and, and what have you and try to fit it around full-time work and a, and a you know family and, and, and what have you but I feel it's been for the better because the data like within it it is born completely out of the work that I've been doing with the athletes that I've worked with and it's really gone quite nicely hand in hand with um, my, my applied it's a very applied PhD and one's fed off the other really nicely along the way so it, it's helped me to fine-tune to answer some questions that, that I had, raise some other questions as well, but really did kind of provide a framework and an approach for me to, to base my speed training on and just help provide a bit of clarity and help clear out some of the, the noise amongst the, the signal, so to speak, or help identify the signal amongst the noise, I should say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and just helping to like, yeah, kind of reduce things down to a more, you know, those more basic elements to really focus on. One of the things that really intrigued me of, in my, I try not to spend too much time on social media, but one of the things I did find really intriguing was you had posted like a sprint acceleration, like three sprint acceleration videos, for example. I think it was the same athlete on Twitter and you would ask coaches to say like, what was the fastest? What was, I, I thought that was really interesting because in my mind, I think, and I'll just, I'm not going to steal any thunder here, but in my mind, I think that coaches have almost this magic position in their head that they associate with being fast. But in reality, that's not always the case. And so it, just tell me a little bit about those, those polls that you're putting out with the different running frames and what you noticed with what coaches were saying. Oh, yeah. So I, I was what, maybe about three, two, three years ago, maybe that I, I put that out there. So for those that haven't seen it, it's essentially a video that shows the same athlete in the same session doing three different um, sprints so over, over the first few steps and the, re- the reason I put it out there I, and I didn't expect it to get nearly as much the attention it did so it was quite cool when you know lots of people commenting and, and what have you but the reason I put it out there is that I'd, I've always been really it's perhaps the skeptic in me as to, to hear people comment on the way in which someone sprints like the first time they've ever seen them without any prior knowledge of them whatsoever to say, oh, you know, they should be doing this or they should be doing that. And I've, I've always really been quite skeptical of that. 
And so, uh, and I guess it's formed a reasonable part of my PhD as well. But, you know, it's certainly not been my experience that there is this one size fits all classical model that we can shoehorn everyone into and that they will run faster as a result. It's, you know, a, a lot more messy and, and more to it. Now, don't get me wrong. I think like that there's, you know, we have to have some kind of criteria and model to start with, right, to compare the athlete against. And I think it's when there's significant deviations from that technical model, then it's entirely appropriate to, you know, bring them in somewhat towards that. But what, what becomes your cutoff point? Do you know what I mean? It's like, yes. you know, and then, then when we get really quite precise around this position, that position, that's when I think we can start losing the, the plot a, li- a little bit. And it's quite interesting with, with that poll that you're talking about on Twitter. So there were three different sprints. So like an ABC, I basically said, right, which one do you think was the fastest or had the best you know, technique? And it was, it was a real division. And there was a real division amongst coaches of all different experiences as well. And which, which just goes to show, you know, a couple of things. One, you know, you can't just look at someone sprinting once without any prior knowledge and make a snap decision as to what they definitely need to help them run faster. But also that, you know, we're probably not all seeing the same thing in the same way, or we're not all interpreting a classical technical model in the same way. But, but I think on that post, I, I, I can't remember for sure, but I, I think it was the effort that was probably voted the, the least turned out to be the one that, yep. that, that was the fastest one, which is essentially what their natural sprinting strategy was at that time. Which bring, brings me on to an interesting point. And, and again, it's partly what, what spawned this is that, you know, I've measured on numerous occasions now, like hundreds and hundreds of occasions, the effect that acute like interventions, verbal cueing, you, you know, has. And I, I'm telling you, like, it is very, very, very rare to have a acute performance improvement following any kind of verbal cue you know if if the athlete's actually going for it you know they're they're going you know they're they're sprinting with maximum intent following any kind of verbal cue the chances are they'll they'll run slower you know if they're focused on whatever that is and and that and that's fine if that's part of a wider and longer term strategy to make a technical change towards something that we think is going to help but um I think certainly for the younger coaches, it's useful to understand that just because in that acute setting, if they are sprinting in a way that you think looks better or more aligned to a classical technical model, it doesn't mean they're sprinting faster. And it also raises the issue that, you know, if, if we are talking with athletes about technique and, and what we want them to do, that if they need to run fast in a competition setting, we shouldn't be telling them to think of it at that point you know that that's one of the worst things we could possibly do maybe there's a a, a case that for track athletes at certain times it might be more applicable but certainly in a team sort setting if we're going to try and tell an athlete to sprint in a certain way and to think about that when they're on the field we're going to screw them up you know let them go but use your training and all the different elements in your training to try and bring about changes, you know, physical constraints or whatever it is that might be impacting their their technique and then let it naturally emerge over time. Anyway, sorry, I've waffled on quite a bit there. but No, I I, I totally agree with you. I think that 
I mean, my own experience has been as such is cueing athletes towards any type of position or ideal or, and I do agree with you. I, I think that I'm a little counterculture in some of the sprint views that I have, which is why I'm like, oh, I want to bring this up because it validates that the athlete ran the fastest is the one who didn't do anything you're supposed to, right? But I agree that there are bandwidths that athletes who, to be truly fast, you do need to start falling into some of these physic like laws of physics that do start to define some of these elite sprinters at least. But I've been reading Nick Winkleman's book as well and the idea of like internal and external cueing and analogies. And like for me personally, and I, I try to have athletes do this, or at least for acceleration where I've gone heavily is just like sensory based stuff where it's like, feel this, don't, don't try to do anything, just notice something, feel something, feel, and then try to work with it that way. But even then, I there's still a, quite a few times where an athlete does like a, even a 10-yard dash or something, and their first one's the fastest. And I think part of it, too, is just expectations. There's, there's a lot of things happening in the mental space where they have a certain before the, or the mind starts criticizing itself and those types of ideas. So I, I definitely understand that. And I, I think the, the three types were in that I want to say where it was like an athlete who was like really projecting harder than he needed to be or or to try to hit those like good projection positions and then a, like a low knee, like a low foot recovery, like just sh- kind of shuffling the feet low, like uber low recovery and then just a normal one in between the two. I think yeah. those are the three, weren't they? Yeah. So, uh, so from memory, I think the the, the first one was like the, the natural, you know, just don't think about it, just sprint as fast as you can. And then, so what, one of the things that I do play around with in, in some of the, the sessions with the guys is get them to uh, experience what it's like to have, you know, maybe a, a longer step length, focus on pushing for longer, being more patient with it, and then shortening right up and right quicker steps, faster step rate, just so that they can get a feel for that, that continuum. Because then, then it's easier for me then. So one of the things that I do will be to longitudinally track their um, spatial temporal variables and, and try and try and look at you know essentially what it is that they're doing when they're running their fastest so this concept of finding out the, the athlete's reliance so if, if they were step length reliant for example then they would be running faster when their step lengths are, are, are longer or if they're step rate reliant they'd be running faster when their step rate's higher and that's that's featured in my phd but is has you know been built on the work of um, Aki Salo and, and, and colleagues who looked at that concept of kind of step length, step rate reliance in sprinters over the course of a hundred meter sprint. So I've kind of built on from there. But what it means is that, say, if I'm working with an athlete and for the first time or the first few sessions, I want to, whilst I'm collecting that kind of data, I want them to start experiencing what it feels like to move along that continuum of greater step length or, or greater step rate, so that by the time I've finished some kind of analysis and have an understanding of where their reliance is at, I can say, right. So it looks like, you know, this tends to be happening when you're running your fastest. Let's explore that now. And they, they've got prior experience now of adjusting according to that kind of continuum. So then it just makes the coaching a lot easier come coming to that point. But go go so going back to your original question, so the the first video that the athlete was just sprinting normally as fast as they can. The second one was you know, focus on greater step length. So being a bit more patient, pushing for longer, kind of maximizing that push off. And then third one was like a bridge between the two. So I said, right, on that third one, if something along the lines of, right, now what I want you to do is try and try and merge somewhere between the first one you did that was your natural strategy 
and, and between that and, and then that one where you've been almost over pushing. And the part of the reason I did that is, you know, to get them to experience along that continuum. But also at that stage, that, that first sprint that they were doing, at that point, I was using, I guess, my coach's eye to you know, figure out, right, I, you know, we have a general model in mind. Where are they against that? OK, so, you know, if we were comparing against that classical model for that athlete in, the, in that situation, you know, we might say that they were possibly, you know, fairly step rate dominant and, you know, fairly cyclical leg action from the start. So, uh, you know, if we wanted to move them more towards a classical technical model, I wanted them to have a feel of the extreme end of, you know, big push, low hill recovery, and then maybe draw them somewhere in the middle, which might be something more feasible to, to direct them towards, if that makes sense. Yeah, let me unpack that in the sense that, and I like how you mentioned, yeah, you step length dominant, step rate dominant, because I, I, what you said that I really like is the continuum thing. I just um, released a Q&A where I talked about how I go about one of the questions was, how do you teach speed to younger athletes or athletes just starting? And I said, hey, I'm not going to actually, with athletes who are very developmental, I actually don't like putting positions in their head. And I like them experiencing continuums. I like them experiencing, like, let's run over these like low, low minute wickets, mini hurdles and run with different hip heights. Start, run as tall as you can. How did it feel? Now run a little lower. Run, you know what I'm saying? Like, because some coach is always going to tell you to run tall, and, <laughs> but you need to find out what works best for you. You can't just do something because someone told you to do it as if that is the one truth of running. And so I'm curious, I, I didn't mention anything about, or I have done less exploration with that on the level of uh, stride uh, rate and length. So I'm curious how you, how do you allow them to experience those continuums in within the rate dominant people and length dominant people? Yeah. So, and so again, part of that, that process, if I'm working out their, their reliance, it doesn't mean that if they are step rate dominant, so if they've got a high step rate, it doesn't mean that their reliance is then, you know, one of being the, the step length reliant. So just because they've got a high, a very high step rate and a short step length, for argument's sake, it doesn't mean that what's right for them is a slightly longer step length in terms of their reliance. It could still be that they've got a high step rate, but it is actually they're running their fastest when that step rate is, mm-hmm. is, is maximized. So or, you know, have a period of time where I'm collecting data to help inform this. But when I'm actually coaching there, going back to what you're saying, I, I will literally keep it really, really simple and, and say, look, over the course of this week, this many weeks, this is my intention that this is, I want to get to the point to try and understand you more as an athlete and figure out, tend to work out for you what terms of what seems to work best when you're running your fastest. Automatically, it tends to get quite nice buy-in and motivation because you know, a lot of the athletes at a certain level are quite, you know, egos are quite high, maybe the wrong phrase, but, you know, they're interested obviously in themselves and, and improving. So I'm, I'm essentially saying to them that we're going to try and find out what might be right for you. And, and especially with, you know, athletes that have been around for a long time, that have heard loads of different things and people telling them to do X, other people telling them to do Y. And so it seems to have been received quite well and that, you know, there's someone here saying, well, you know, they're interested in, in me and what might be right for me. So, so they, they understand that concept from, from the outset. They understand what I mean by step length and step rate and why I'm collecting the, the measures that, that I'm, I'm collecting and ultimately what it might tell us at the end of that data collection period of however long that is. So then I say to them, look, in the meantime, we'll get some speed work done. You know, you'll be going as fast as you can at times and 
and we'll explore some other avenues. So all the time you're going to be getting exposure to sprinting and the speed adaptations to help get you faster or stop you from you know, getting slower. But along the way, we're going to explore different things to try and, I guess, make you a bit more malleable and more variable so that by the time, if we do want to make a technical change, it's going to be much easier for you to do it because you've got much better awareness, awareness of your body is in, in space. You can understand how to increase your step length or, or your step rate and also how that feels. And then once they can latch onto that feel, coaching becomes so much, much easier. I, I am going off on a tangent here, but what, one of the things that, you know, I'll often hear is that coaches say, well, you know, we don't have, we don't have enough time to make a technical change, which I think is absolute nonsense because if the athlete understands what it is, that they're trying to change. They don't need you there. They don't need you there. Doesn't need to be labor intensive with you coaching the whole time. If they if they have a very clear understanding of what it is that you, you know you want them to do and that they're bought into it, there's going to be multiple opportunities in that week at the end of warm-ups, even before a match as a warm-up, you know, to to get exposure to working on the the you know the differences in the strategy or the technical features or whatever it is you want them to work on. And you know the the you know nervous system is very plastic, et cetera, et cetera. So if they're going to get consistent exposure to that, you know, multiple times week after week, then those changes will start to happen and will start to emerge subconsciously within competition. And and you know it needs to be subconsciously because we don't want to be taking up a lot of their attentional capacity. So that can be put towards tactics and you know other things w- within the game. But so in terms of exploring that continuum, you know, it literally, you know, I might have time to say, right, so, you know, go as fast as you can. Don't think about anything. Okay, so now what I want you to do, you're going to focus on a maximizing distance with each step. Discussions around how that feels. Okay, now we're going to go back to normal. Okay, now we're going to go back to length again, back to normal. Okay, now this time I want to work on right faster set from the, you know, from the out step. Um, and all the time I might be saying to them, look, you know, I don't necessarily want you to completely change how you're sprinting here. We might be just be talking like a, a slight shift towards one more than the other. But before long, they get really adept at making these subtle or or bigger changes just, just by going through that exploration process. You know, very kind of simple, really. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. I, I love the exploration, and I think because a lot of times, especially with athletes are so used to hearing probably the same type of cue set from coaches probably their whole life, and 
one of the interesting things that I've done on that continuum uh, in a similar manner is running with like lower knees. And I think I first saw this actually, uh, I saw it in the, Franz Bo- in the Franz Bosch running book, like running with low knees. And I don't think there was a lot of explanation necessarily. It was just in the prescriptions. I, I want to say, maybe I didn't read the book good enough. And then I was wondering, I was like, why would you do that? And one day at the track, a Darien Bar told me, I don't know, I would always, in my time I spent with a Darien Bar, I would always ask him at the end of whatever we were doing. I was like, hey, give me a, some 200s to run or something. Tell me to tell me what to do. And like, sometimes it'd be run like a 300 as fast as you can with one arm. Or, but this time it was run six 200s with like low knees, like don't bring your knees up. And I was like, okay, like I'll do it. And then what I started to notice in the course of doing that was, that I just felt like my feet, I, I it, it drew the intention down into what my feet were doing and how they were managing the ground. And then the last sprint, I started to bring them up a little bit. It was like, it was like someone put a rocket out of my feet. Like, it's like, this is how I felt in high school before I started to try to run like everyone wanted me to. And <laughs> I was pretty fast in high school. And so it's, it's almost this, but it's this continuum. Should you run, like, are you going to run a race with like lower? I mean, you might run with lower knees in sport, right? Like at some point, like there's that choppier action. But so I've and I've had a lot of uh, good success having people actually ride that continuum up. Like it's almost like you're working from low knees up rather mm-hmm. than high knees. And then just would you actually sprint in competition? No one's going to run with as high knees as you do over those wickets or right. Like so it's kind of I, I like that bottom up teaching uh, for athletes. And so you just reminded me of, of that with uh, talking about the rate and exploring that. But what, I mean, but what it does is well, like you're, so you're opening up or increasing their, I guess, like their movement vocabulary, right? And the, the variability in the in way in which they run. They're experiencing lots of different ways to do it, which then, you know, should mean that they're then able to adapt to much more novel situations within a game-based situation, right? Because they're, they're never going to, you know, or depending on the team sort of the situation, you know, yes, there is straight-line sprinting, but... But, you know, it's never going to be straight line sprinting like on a track. And, and there's going to be situations where they have obviously going to be slowing down, stepping, whatever. So the ability to manipulate their steps in terms of, you know, the length and the speed and, you know, being lower, higher up or whatever, it, it's all valuable stuff for them because, you know, they're, they're never going to sprint the same way twice in, in, in a game, really. So that they need to be able to adapt to those novel situations. And in fact, I'd even ex- extend that out to a track athlete you know, they're never going to sprint the same twice. They're never going to produce exactly the same step. And, you know, there might be a certain meet where they're a bit more fatigued or they're feeling more powerful or there's a different kind of wind coming in or whatever it is, there's more pressure, the competition, you know, it means that there's going to be variability in everything that they do. So, so sometimes exploring that variability, I think, is really quite important because then they can adjust to the novel situations within their sport, whatever that may be. Yeah, I I would agree. I I was just reading a little bit of um the range book by David Epstein and talking about it was like Tiger Woods versus Roger Federer and the idea that like you know Tiger Woods super specialized like at you know early age and Roger Federer you know this guy who I think a lot of people in tennis would say he has the most beautiful technique like his technique is so good. Well, how did he get that right? Did some coach like tell him exactly what to do? Uh, he actually played an incredible amount of sports uh, and tons of variability and tons of ways of experiencing different ball sports of all types, not just racket sports, but other sports as well. And it's almost as if the purest technique, this is my belief, at least that the purest possible technique comes not from 
like do this, do this, do this, but more so this collection of experiences that we can synthesize. And I mean, I, I do think absolutely there's, when we get an athlete, there is things that, you know, eventually they should be able to do. They should be, I, I mean, if you look at the bandwidth of what Federer is doing with how his stroke is, it's right. It's probably almost the, if there was a model, it would almost be the model, but how did the body synthesize it? It synthesized it through all these ex- collective experiences over time, like this wide range. And I know sprinting is a little less, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways and you're going to end up swinging a tennis racket. There's less ways to run in a straight line on some level, but I still do think that experiential nature is really important. And mm. I think it's good. I, I, I'm actually, I'm happy in talking to you because I tend to just take that from a very philosophical, just very pure art on a canvas sense. But I don't do a lot of database stuff where we are trying to find these like rocks, so to speak, so that we at least can have a starting point, right? And so uh, the big question I have for you then, and you've already talked about it a little bit, is the acceleration profile. So I know we talked about stride rate and length and kind of riding those or surfing those curves. But then the acceleration profile, what are some big markers that it's like, okay, let's these are some key components of how I'm going to work with you and where we're going to look at for the acceleration. Yeah. So, so the, the typical way which, in which I approach it, I, I look to characterize each person's individual strategy according to their, the combination of their normalized spatial temporal variables. So essentially what, what I mean by that is that I'll first look to try and identify what their preferential strategy is, looking at it as a more whole body kinematic approach. So I'll look at the combination of their step length, step rates, contact time and flight times. So how they combine as, as one kind of whole body picture for that athlete. The, the reason I, I do that, and I'll, I'll come on to explain what that looks like a, bit more in a bit but the, the, the reason why I do that is that so in the early days of my PhD in particular you know I was essentially testing these different technical models and the, the various technical features that you know we, we classically associate with with sprinters and you know fastest people in the world and, and, and what have you and just found it to be a very very messy process so nothing individually was related to performance in any athlete population. There are things that separated some athlete groups from others, but some of that is due to just the different physical constraints between the athletes rather than it being a a better technique or not. And looking at a lot of those technical features in isolation is a pretty reductionist approach. You know, we're not we're not a makeup of lots of individual things it's the interaction of of everything together the whole system right so the the next layer then it led me on to is look at right well looking at these technical features in isolation so i don't know chin angle at touchdown or toe off distance or you know whatever it is if that might not be helping give us a, a fuller picture what what next so well then led me to look at um the combination of those variables together so okay we might say that Shin angle isn't related to 10 meter sprint performance. But then what about if it's also combined with, you know, what the trunk angle is doing or, you know, the, the horizontal distance between our toe and our center of mass at toe off or, or, you know, whatever it is. So 
a collection of potentially key variables. And then that starts to tell us, you know, a bit more in that, you know, there are some features that, that collectively, when combined, will predict, uh, you know, a, a meaningful enough of, of our sprint performance. But then still, you know, we might only be talking about 30% or, or something like that. So, so it's, you know, meaningful and worth looking at, but, it, but there's a huge chunk that, that it doesn't, you know, tell us that, you know, what else is contributing to, to the performance there. And essentially what, what I found is that trying to do it in this way is a very messy approach and, and, and partly due to a number of things. So those variables are, are, you know, quite noisy often. So just in terms of the way that they're, they're measured, but also the amount of biological variability associated with each individual. So there's, you know, a reasonable amount of variation in terms of the joint and, and segment angular positions um, from one sprint to another for that individual it will just be slightly different sprint to sprint. So it becomes harder than, you, you know, if you've got an, an athlete sprinting with certain angles on one day, but then they're very slightly different on another day, well, what's representative of them? So then it becomes quite difficult to try and measure technical features like that that, that may be related to performance or not because there's a reasonable amount of variability there so I kind of took a step back and I guess considered the athlete as a you know a bit more of a complex whole system and thought well you know maybe we're better off looking at um, what represents the interaction of all those linear angular kinematics and the kinetics of the athletes and sprinting and which led me down the line of looking at the more whole at the more whole body level in terms of the outcome of their you know step length step rate contact time flight times which are much less variable compared to those other measures that we can look at and what i've found is that by the time we're an adult athlete we've obviously learned to run in a certain way or, or we, we run with a certain technique that you know is very identifiable to that person it's quite unique to that person. You can look at someone without seeing their head. And, you know, if it's a group of athletes you work with, you can say, oh, yeah, that's such and such, just by the way in which they're running, right? So they their strategy is quite stable once they reach adulthood through their experiences, how they learn to sprint, injury history, physical training, you know, so on and so forth. And it, it's even more stable when you look at the spatial temporal variables. I'm, I'm talking about specifically in the first kind of 10 meters here. So I thought, right, well, what happens if, if we lump those variables together in, in something called a cluster analysis, which, you know, to cut a long story short, essentially then means that it gives us a way of, of, of categorizing or, or finding out amongst a cohort of athletes and the different strategies that might exist according to the combination of those variables. And, and what I found is that initially in, in rugby players, so with the first four steps I was looking at, first of all, so it showed that very broadly that there were four main kind of strategies. So those strategies would be you might have an individual who has a high, higher step rate relative to their step length. So there might be step rate and preference. So that's their natural go-to. And they achieve that through a higher contact time relative to their flight time. So that would be one strategy. You might have another strategy then that is still step rate preference but they achieve that by shorter contact times relative to the flight times. Then you might have someone who's more step length dominant. So they have long step lengths relative to their step rate, but their contact times are lower relative to their flight times. And then the other that, you, you know, a, 
a step length preference person, but longer flight times compared to contact time. Can't remember which one I just said now, but but essentially got these four kind of strategies according to their combination of their spatial temporal variables. So I'd, I'll use a particular figure where the, these athletes are placed on like a Cartesian plane where there's kind of four quadrants that they can appear in based on these strategies. And, and what, what was shown in, in, that, um, in that research with those rugby players is that none of those strategies were more related to performance than any other. So I thought, ah, oh, that's quite annoying in a way. It just opens up, you know, more stuff to consider. So I thought, all right, let me now look at it over 10 metres. Did that, found the same thing. Let me look at it with um, international female lacrosse players, found the same thing. International rugby male sevens players, professional football, soccer players, found the same thing. So, you know, there's this level of inter-athlete degeneracy. So essentially, you know, different ways of achieving the same kind of performance outcome in sprinting. So I thought, well, do you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to stop trying to chase looking for a perfect model for people, you know, while still believing that we've got to have somewhere that we don't want to stray too far from. But once, you know, within a, a decent enough range, I'm not going to continue to try and chase what we might deem to be a perfect model. And so the next step, then once we've found out their, their type, so their type on that quadrant, and by the way, it's for me, it's really useful because it means we've now actually got a way to measure their strategy, you know, a single kind of data point to measure their strategy and how that changes in response to technical interventions or other you know, training interventions. And so once I've got that, I need to look at it more at the individual level. So across multiple sprint efforts, and, and I can do this usually with about 12 sprints, I can then start exploring that concept of their reliance. So essentially try and find out, right, where does their strategy move to when they're running their fastest? And that might you know, bring up things where they might be step rate reliant. So they're running their fastest when their step rate's higher, but that also might be driven by less flight time. Okay, so now that gives me maybe a bit more of a clearer direction that I want to explore with my training. And then the final kind of chapter in my PhD is then looking at, right, what interventions. So I've got some case study athletes there showing where you know, I've got them to do X, Y, and Z, targeting on their reliance, and that then resulting in superior kind of sprint performance after a, a period of time. So I guess that gives you a bit of an insight into the journey as to where I've got to where I've got and, and, that, and that approach in terms of the profiling. So that would cover the kind of the, you know, the technical strategy side of thing. And then there's kind of strength stuff that I look at as well. Cool. So if you were to, that, so that quadrant, I'm just trying to rehash this in my mind. So it would be athletes who are step rate dominant for two of the quadrants. And within the step rate dominant, you have long and short contact. And then yeah. within step length, you have long and short. And so let's say I have an athlete and they're step length dominant with a short contact. What I'm going to do, or you, <laughs> what, I'm, what I should do instead of just saying, oh, hit this model position because this is the best. Because you said there's all sorts of different strategies there. Uh, which I think is a beautiful thing. I want to take their strengths and work in the, you know, allow them to experience different things within that strength. So your long step length, short contact, let's, uh, let's maybe experience some longer, you know, pushes or, or some sled resist or like, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like within whatever they do experience there versus, Hey, I want you to experience like a lot of short, let's, let's make your steps you know, shorter or quicker or punchier. Or, you let, know what I'm saying? Let, let, me give, let me give you a very specific example. And this is the, you know, it doesn't always go like this, but but this is the the um, quickest way in which I've managed to 
help facilitate some kind of robust technical change, so one that stands up under pressure, that's subconscious, within 12 weeks and, and have noticeable differences the other side in initial sprint acceleration performance. So I said a, a, rugby, a rugby guy is a, is a winger, so reasonably quick, but wasn't, say, as fast over the first 10 compared to his you know, top end speed. So we made that a bit of a focus and he picked up an injury. I can't remember what it was. Um, I think it was his thumb or something like that. And then he couldn't play. We had a bit more time to, to work on kind of some sprint stuff. Um, he was gifted from a, a, a strength standpoint. So there weren't necessarily strength qualities holding him back from being able to achieve the, the, the shift in strategy re- required. But going through the, the, the profiling process, it turned out that he was step rate reliant. So in other words, he was running his fastest when his step rate was higher, and that was driven by shorter flight time. So on, on the basis of that, the way in which I work with him, and this is kind of the way that I typically work with most people now around this, I'll, I'll you know discuss that with, with them to say, look, these are, this is the kind of stuff that, that I'm seeing and you know, make sure that they're, they're educated about it. And that, that's really important, going back to what we were saying a while ago, in that you know, they need to be, if you want them to be able to work on something and, and make sure they have the motivation to change it, you know, they, they need to obviously buy into it. So they, they want to know what they're doing and, and why they're doing it. Not all athletes do, but in this situation. So anyway, so explaining the concept to him and saying, look, ultimately, you're showing that you're running your fastest when your step rate is higher and he knows now what what you know step rate means so I said right what i want you to do is go away for 5 minutes and just just by yourself explore what that feels like to you and you you know he came back and so i said right what what did it feel like and i was just observing from a distance seeing what's you and i can see you know shorter steps and i said what did it feel like and he said well i just felt like i was moving my legs faster saying great okay well let, let's um, let's run with that so to check that, you know, his step rate was increasing and more so by his flight time at the end of that session, you know, recorded a few videos to see if we're on the right lines. And it was. So I said, right, you know, you've got now, you know, probably the best part of eight to 10 weeks before we're back in playing. Every opportunity you get to sprint, apart from the times when you need to run really fast in match play, you know, in training, that kind of stuff. So warm up efforts, our speed sessions when we're doing acceleration. Just focus on that concept. And, you, you know, he did it. So for, you know, there'd been maybe three, four, five opportunities in the week, depending on what was going on in the week, to, to be exposed to him working on that. And then we had a round of testing at the end of it, not specifically for him, but all the other guys as well. And so he's there sprinting in front of the camera. And I called him over afterwards and said, look, just make sure you don't think about what you're doing there look like you he said I, I wasn't I was genuinely not changing anything and it had you know kind of transferred over into something for for him that then became quite subconscious and and that's a short period of time you, you know we, we struck it lucky for whatever reason that the gods were you know in, in our favor on that period of time but it manifested itself in a relatively quick change now I've got other case study examples that have taken a lot longer than that you know, a year, 18 months sometimes to make, you know, a meaningful change that has transferred over into better sprint performance as well. But that that's to give you like an example at the most basic level without any other kind of input from a, you know, a strength or, or therapy point of view. 
where we managed to get some kind of change just by the athlete understanding what you know we we were exploring together and just some consistency with that and yeah there we go but then there, there are other situations where you know someone has come up as being a reliance um whatever it is but i know that you know a certain strength quality might be underpinning that and their strength quality is dire in that area so my approach there has been well let's go after that strength quality i'm not going to cue you anything in how you sprint you're going to sprint but we're going to use you know changes in that strength quality over time to bring about those changes subconsciously in, in the way in which you sprint and, and, and you know and, and so that that might be a, a longer term focus because there's a physical constraint there preventing him from you know reaching that that or the extent of the the shifting strategy that you want and then there's everything else all, all in between but then it just i don't know gives you some ideas there sir in in your opinion how often do you think that would the key to someone sprinting faster i mean it's it's i guess this is a tough question because it's really both strength and technique are very interrelated They're, they could almost be i know franz bosch refers to is almost the same thing um, yeah. and so but if you had to kind of draw it out as as you categorize it to say, hey, the key to you getting faster is some sort of technical change versus the key to you getting faster is just improving this strength quality. I guess you would never make it binary. I mean, we all ideally we try to have it. Both, yeah, it's both not, yeah. it, you know, in my mind, it's, it's obviously it's not one or the other. So, again, in, in the research that I've conducted in my PhD, I've, I've, you know, found that you'll never find a single strength quality that's going to be repeatedly related to sprint acceleration performance across all different athlete groups, right? You know, you'll find one study that showed, oh, there was a relationship of 0.9 in the back squat with these group of football players and then nothing with this group and whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a bit of a mix because, you know, again, like what I was saying with looking at single technical features in isolation, it's a really reductionist view of looking at things and even more so because you know strength is generally quite far removed from sprinting but it also depends on what we mean by strength so with the the research that i've carried out i've tended to base my strength-based assessments off the, the the joint kinetics during sprinting so over the initial steps of a sprint we know that our hip extensors for example during that first third of the stance phase will contribute a lot to our forward acceleration of the center of mass but i also know that the extent to which it does contribute to the acceleration of our center of mass is also going to be dependent on the stable foot position and a you know a stiff ankle during that first third of the stance phase because if my heel drops suddenly to the ground and i'm just you know collapsing to the floor then we haven't got an anchor from which my hip can push me forward. I then know that whilst that's taking place, I'm going to be building up that elastic energy through my ankle. And then that's going to you know, be released in the ensuing two thirds of the stance phase to contribute even more to my acceleration. So I know that you know, hip extensor strength, power qualities are important. I know that ankle, I guess, more concentric explosive strength qualities are important, but there's also that element before that's realized where the ability to, to store elastic energy and be stiff is still important. So I know, you know, we've got a range of strength qualities there in pools and, and, and then generally the more ballistic concentric explosive strength qualities of the knee. So my strength-based assessments are typically based around those strength qualities. So I'll look at a hip talk, hip extensor talk test. I'll look at some repeated single leg drop jump type measures. So jumping in place, 
and I'll look at like a squat jump force velocity profile. And based off those strength characteristics or the, the measures that I can get from that, it gives me an idea of whether there's going to be, you know, if they're significantly deficient in some of those areas, then I know that might be somewhat of a barrier that, that's preventing them from getting a bit faster, for example. But it's never going to tell me everything about their performance. It's only good, you know. So again, if I look at some of the regression analysis that I've conducted, peak hip extensor torque, um, single leg reactive strength index, and peak power during a um, squat jump, for example, those three measures combined seem to consistently relate to a reasonable amount in the variation of sprint performance. So never loads, but there's it's reasonably consistent. So for me, it suggests that, you know, I want to ensure that I'm, I'm, I guess I'm reaching what we might consider to be minimum thresholds. And providing I'm at minimum thresholds, whatever they may be, I'm not too fussed about really chasing after them beyond that point. I would want to ensure they're at a certain level, but continuing to go after them even more is perhaps going to take away some of the energy and time that might be better put towards something else. Yeah, it, it makes me think a little bit about I don't know how I'm drawing this connection, but like Dan John, uh, when he was on, was talking about discus throwing and training and somebody who's like only could throw 140, who's trying to like 140 feet, who's trying to like periodize their whole season and really like make it all fancy. And he's like, Dan's like, like some like until you're throwing 190, like just don't even think about that stuff basically. Like, and, and I, and I think about it in the sense of if an athlete is slow and we're trying to like really dial in the technical elements, but they don't hit any of those strength thresholds like what like i mean i love biomechanics and i love technique but at the end of the day if you have no strength and it makes me think about uh, like jay schrader's system and i don't they didn't do any running and zero technique work it was all devoted to let's just improve the structure and then let the athlete figure it out and and i think a lot of times that's that's i think that's a fine strategy a lot of times and and because i think especially given the tendency of a lot of coaches to like we've talked about be reductionist hone in on one technical element like basically mess the athlete up for the most part or and then the athlete just forgets it all later and just goes and runs how they want to and they're stronger and so they're hopefully it, it looks a little better you know so well, what, i mean i guess what, what i haven't mentioned there then I, I should have said this from start really but but that profiling process that i'll go through to look at their strategy and their reliance you know really i'm reserving that for the the, the 20 the 15 20 percent you know so the the bulk of the training, particularly for you know athletes progressing through, it is going to be you know your strength, power stuff, sprinting when fresh, jumping, med ball throws, you know all the stuff where we're trying to elicit the you know the neuromuscular adaptations that we know are going to help them express more force quickly. Essentially, you know that that is the bulk of the training. It just there becomes a certain point as that athlete matures and gets older, and you know more training under their belt that maybe looking at a bit more of a specific thing it is going to help. And that's where that profiling system comes in place. But I'm under no illusions that, you know, that is reserved for, in the grand scheme of things, probably a relatively minor group in, in the population. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, and in a lot of team sport athlete, a lot of team sport situations, the vast majority of their, you know, speed requirements would be taken care of by sprinting, jumping, throwing, lifting heavy stuff than lifting some moderately heavy stuff fast. You know, that, that I really do. And, and provided that's within their training week at appropriate times and appropriate to the individual and their 
training ages and what have you that that is without doubt you know the bulk of it in my opinion so the three strength measures actually i'd, I'd like to dig into those just quickly and yeah. i i I think about Iman Flanagan too. If a test, if you do a test too much, then it's not a test anymore too. I, I, I get that. But like the, so you said squat, jump, power, uh, concentric power in squat, squat, yeah, jump. So, so, I, so I use the um, Pierre Samazino, JB Marin's like squat, jump, full swiss okay. profiling. So, so the, the way in which I do that testing is adapt, it's only adapted very slightly, but so the, the, the squat, jump, peak power from that full swiss profiling. Yep. Okay, and then the there was a hip extension and a single leg test. A sing, was a single leg reactivity test. Could you explain yeah, the other two? So, so I do a, a single leg jump in place test. Okay, so like um, adapted from Damian Harper's like ten five approach. So essentially, they hop up and down on a leg, one leg, trying to get as high as they can off the floor as quick as they can. Got it. The side of the non test leg, hip and knee roughly ninety degree angle. They keep that kind of roughly there throughout. You know, swings a little bit, but not too much. Hands on the hips. And, and, and I look at, you know, contact time, jump height, reactive strength sure. index from that. For some people, that for reasonably athletic people, it can be reliable, reliable pretty quickly. For those less athletic and, you know, not so used to that kind of stuff, they might need a couple of familiarization trials under their belt. Um, and then the hip extensor talk test. So the athletes lying on their back, hips fixed beneath an immovable bar. And then the heels in contact with the force plate. So the hip and knee angle are set to whatever we want. Other limbs in the air. And they're pushing the heel down into the force plate as if trying to push the bar up towards the ceiling. And I've kind of ripped that off of, um, or amended that from, from John Goodwin. Um, but so I'd use that in a unilateral kind of version. And I can look at the way I do it. I can get peak hip extensor torque and I can get more kind of like rate of force type measures as well from that. But, uh, but yeah. I like that. Actually, that makes me think about Chris Corfus has said, probably on this podcast, if you have strong feet and strong hips, I can make you fast. And I think that's almost like, like, get those. That's a critical rock of getting faster because we can talk about cues. And, you know, I, I think it's good to explore. And maybe as, as you're exploring, you will and you get stronger. It, you know, it can all we can do it all at the same time. But I, to, to obsess over some of these more biomechanical things when those things aren't there in the first place. No, absolutely. But but the research is there to support that as well in terms of, you know, if you look at the biomechanics literature, but around the joint kinetics in sprinting. So it consistently shows that you know, hip extensor moments and the, the, the plantar flexor moments are more related to horizontal acceleration of the center of mass. They are more related to that, you know, center of mass performance, center of mass acceleration and sprint performance compared to, say, the knee joint. The knee joint is still important, obviously. But, but the, the hip and the ankle consistently, you know, tend to come out as, um, you know, more, more key. I like yeah. that. The, it reminds me of Alex Natera's stuff, like the max ISO. And, and I like yeah. that it's a nice, it's an isometric, right? Like you're pushing, it's a bar into a force plate, like something like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I, like, I like thinking as a series of isometrics. And I imagine that actually could be used as a training tool as well, that, that yeah. type of test. Absolutely. Well, all, all three of the, the assessments that I do can act as training you know, as well. But yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so with the, with the hip and the foot, and I like the single leg, uh, hop RSI. I've actually been turned on to using that a little bit more. I've been using, um, uh, the plyo mat, which is a new kind of like a update to the just jump mat. And it's, um, and one of the big things that I've been doing is this, just a single leg RSI type test and thinking about just like how, just honing into what's the most specific thing I can do to test foot and ankle strength 
in hop. I mean, really just trying to have a, a lowest degrees of freedom possible single leg kind of hop test. And so it's like, well, there's the feet, you know, the hip test is, and I, I do want to ask you as well. I think you've had, um, you've talked about this before on podcasts about getting an idea if an athlete is hip or foot dominant based off of those tests. I mean, do athletes tend to be like have slide towards one or the other, like, it, like someone who's really good at the single leg hop, do they tend to maybe not be as powerful in the, uh, the single leg hip thrust extensor power and vice versa? Or is there any trends there that you find interesting? Yeah, yeah it, it's, it is an interesting one. And it, it's oh, going back quite, quite a while ago now. But I remember working with an athlete who um, had had a history of ankle issues on, on one side. But by the time I was working with them, you know, the ankle was fine. They had no, no problems or, or, or what have you. But when doing um, these tests with them, their hip extensor peak torque on, on that previously affected side would, was like extremely high, higher than the other side and higher than, you, you know, kind of scores that I was anticipating. But the ankle reactive strength and the contact times were really poor on that side, worse compared to the other side. And again, compared to kind of say the average of, of the group. Um, so I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I, I, I didn't know he'd had a, a previous ankle issue at that point. And so then I, you know, conducted some like video analysis and sprinting and, and just noticed real differences left to right. So on that side where he was very strong through his hip extensors, but his, um, you know, reactive strength and, and stiffness type qualities on, on that side were really poor. He had a strategy whereby he was striking the ground with his foot quite far forward of his centre of mass, so very vert vertical shin position, almost a hill strike. And it, it really, I, it's difficult to explain it, but it was like he was just like ripping himself through the ground contact with his hip extensors. But then on the other side, we had a bit more of, you know, a bit more of a reactive foot contact, more towards the ball of the foot, closer to his centre of mass, and you know a lot more springing so he's, he's kind of had a lot of rotation as a result he's like clawing one side pushing bouncing off the other and and i thought you know that that's really interesting that it, it you know really jumped out in terms of the imbalances in it in the strength-based testing seemed to manifest itself in his movement strategy and sprinting um and it was only until you know after discussing that with him that i found out about his previous ankle issues so you know, he, he was having, he was no longer having ankle issues, but I'm pretty sure he probably wasn't rehabbed to the point that he could have been or, or should have been um, to get the ankle back to, you know, how it was functioning before. So I've always loosely kept an eye on that. And I certainly see more of a pattern with um, people who have had previous injuries and coming back where they're still able to and this is where the human body is pretty clever, right? You know, they've still got back to the point where they're running fast and as fast as they were before. But the strategy and where they're doing it is, is, you know, adapted according to that injury that they've had. And I, it, I don't see the same pattern always when, you know, when there isn't a prior injury. But when, when the difference, like if, you know, if there's a significant difference between hip extensor strength versus the, the ankle qualities, I'm looking at the drop jump, there does seem to be some like correlation with the, the touchdown strategy of the athlete. Um, so that typically further forward of their center of mass, favoring that the hips are propelled them forwards. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think to me that highlights too just how like, I mean, yes, strength, the strength and technique are related where if you run a certain way for long enough, like that's where the strength shows up in that level. And that's where I think that Mm -hmm. running in more squatted positions might really bias that glute and hip and running really tall and bouncy would bias the foot and those types of things. So you get, you do each and you get the strength kind of from each and just the interplay over time i I find interesting um i know our time is running um just about up here so i just want to very quickly ask you you mentioned jb marin and uh pierre samazino and that you know the assessment there but how does um their their drf or or basically i should explain this if someone doesn't know what drf is but how does they um what they have their metric in regards to um being able to push project horizontal force or convert force to a horizontal thrust and acceleration and i know a sled being an easy way to train that like a very simple low-hanging rock or fruit um how does that play into some of the uh, assessments that you've done what's your take with that are you talking about their actual their their sprint force velocity profiling or the use of a sled to help orient the ground reaction force vector more horizontally uh i guess just i'll just keep it more to the the sled and the vector just because that's a little bit more uh, applied for what you know we're talking about right now yeah well yeah i mean i guess that that's one of the beauties of resisted sprint work isn't it and that you know to pull a sled forward you have to orient the ground reaction force vector more horizontally because you know if you're just going to pull it upwards you're not going to go anywhere so it you know constrains you and forces you to organize yourself hopefully in an effective way to you know pull the sled forward so by the very nature of, of adding the, the sled you're having to orient that ground reaction force vector more horizontally without thinking about it so it, again for me it, it's helpful for a couple of things one from a pure training adaptation um you, you know you're, you're going to get some um, with the neuromuscular adaptations, and, and in particular, actually around the ankle with, with, with sled sprinting, but that those leg ballistic strength qualities you want to develop in the leg, you know, it's going to help that a, a lot. But then also, it, it's giving you a feel of what it's like to be able to orient that ground reaction force vector more horizontally. So, again, from a coaching perspective, it's quite easy to, you know, go for some, from some resisted sprints into some normal sprints and try and get them to hold on a bit to what it felt like during those resisted sprints, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I I really, it's like the thing you've said multiple times is hold, like holding on to what something feels like, notice how something feels. And Mm. I just think that's so important. I love too, that you're getting all these like data points and PhD work, but there's also that art, the art, the feeling and that like what manifests to hit the data points a lot of times is feel this, like, don't just hit this position, feel this. And, and, and I, I use those contrasts all the time. So um, I really like that. Anyways, I know um, our time's up, so I won't hold you any longer, James. But thank you for sharing your thoughts today. Totally appreciate you coming on. And I really appreciate all your interesting anecdotes and and all these um, elements on sprinting. So thank you. No, thanks very much. And thanks for the invite. And yeah, apologies to to waffle on a lot. But uh, there we go. That ends another show. If you enjoyed it, you could help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, um, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. We'd really appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.